Our first reading is from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Our second reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And Hebrews 13, verses 17 to 25. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honourably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. As I turn to the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 13, I was reminded of a football match I was watching about six, maybe eight weeks ago. It was uh, unique in all the many years I've been watching the uh, spherical shaped ball, shall we say. Because the players were there and you could hear every word that they were saying. The ref was there too. They had a football, obviously. The camera men and women, they turned up. Uh, the coaches were there shouting quite a lot and quite loudly. But what was strange was everybody was there on the pitch. And then it struck me that no one was there in the stands. It was Barcelona against someone. It was when the trouble was happening um, in Catalonia and the powers that be decided to shut the doors so that none of the 99,430-odd capacity could be filled. They thought there was going to be trouble in the stands. And it was the most boring game I've seen for quite a while because there was no atmosphere. There was no one um, cheering on the football team from the stands. No one saying, that was brilliant, ooh, ah, Cantona, wrong, wrong team. But all that, none of that was going on in the stands at all. It was just these small players and looking like a bit of a video game with this barren backdrop of uh, purple and kind of blue-cutted seats. Without the crowd cheering you on, without a support mechanism, the team were getting nowhere. You could just hear their voices. And then it reminded me as well, before we get to the passage, and we will get there, just how dangerous a role it is to be a sports coach. Choose your sport. When the team isn't doing well, it's your fault. When the team's doing well, aren't the team doing well? Uh, it reminded me of the tennis players and how quickly they get through their coaches when they're not doing well. It's time for a change. Even the great Roger Federer exchanged his coach for a different one and they said to them, I know, Roger, you're quite good at tennis and you've won an amazing amount of trophies, but rather than slicing your backhand so much, why don't you just drive through the ball? 
Why don't you be more aggressive? And the guy wins more and more. Incredible power. We need people to cheer us on. We need a coach to cheer us on and say, look, that's great, but that's not so great. That's what Hebrews 13 is about. It's about people who desperately need shepherding, you and me. It's about people that desperately need cheering on, need rebuking, need encouraging, need admonishing, need support from other people. And it comes from the most surprising of places, beginning in verse 17. We've said over and over again, just to drill it in, the book of Hebrews is written to people who are struggling, who are oppressed, who are facing a great uncertainty in the future in an earthly sense, and they're tempted to stop following the Lord Jesus and to go back to Judaism. And so the writer has been saying in this book of encouragement, you need chapter 11 to be people of faith. If you're people of faith and faith in Jesus and trusting in God, taking him at his word, then you'll get through the hardship. You need to, chapter 12, verse 1, fix your eyes on Jesus, and if you do that, you'll get through the hardship. You need to be convinced, second half of chapter 12, of the ultimate solid reality of the future city that is called heaven. If you're convinced of that, then you'll be able to persevere through hardship, chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. And this afternoon, here's one more thing that you need. You need coaches. You need a crowd to cheer you on. You need support structures. You need advice. You need counsel. You need need shepherding. You need shepherding. That's what this passage is about. But it comes. It comes from a very strange source. Let's look at this together. Our need for a shepherd, the identity, these strange sources that it comes from, and then the power that there is. Okay, Need, identity, and power. Here's our need, our need of shepherds. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 of chapter 13 of Hebrews. We're almost at the final sentence. And what has made me scratch my head this week is that there's a new name for Jesus right at the end of the book. And why would it be there? Verse 20, sentence 20. Jesus Christ is called, read with me, the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. Now, why would you introduce a new theme into a book just as you're getting to the end? You're breaking all the rules in communication strategy. This is when you sum up. You don't bring in any new material, no new metaphors. You rub in what you've already taught. Jesus has not been called a shepherd once in the whole book of Hebrews, and now here he are with literally uh, four sentences to go, and a new image is brought in. But it's not an afterthought. It's not a slip of the quill, because this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God. And he's describing, as Andy so helpfully put it last week, beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, he's applying all the truths in the first 12 chapters, all the foundational structures. He's now saying, this is what the house looks like. This is what Christian community looks like. It's a place of sexual purity, a place of generosity, a place of hospitality, a place where, a place where you have shepherds because you are sheep. So it's not an afterthought. It's talking about the community life that we know as church. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over your souls. In other words, your leaders are shepherding. It's not an afterthought to call Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. We are his flock. We are sheep. And it might be the first time that Hebrews has introduced this theme, but it's throughout the Bible. 
that people are like sheep. You and I are sheep-like. It is, to use three words, an accurate, a rich, and a very offensive way of talking to each one of us. It's rich because it's true. It's rich to describe us as sheep because, well, when we think of sheep, we go a little bit kind of rose-tinted, don't we? We go a bit dewy-eyed and we think of little fluffy animals. And as someone who is not an animal lover, but someone who has started to watch, because my children are, Yorkshire Vet, I know that sheep are not too fluffy looking. They're absolutely, they're obstinate. That's where the offence comes in. They are consumed with what's in front of their noses. They are homes for millions of little insects on their outside. They're prone to do silly things, like swallow stuff that needs to be operated on to get out. You can look at the episode yourself. But sheep are dirty, nasty things, home to loads of uh, unpleasantness. They're unintelligent, they're obstinate. And I had to look all that up because I'm not an animal lover. But unlike any other animal, I did look this up. Unlike any other animal, well, think of a cat or a dog. My brother has bought a dog, and he will learn that it was a mistake. But he also will learn that they can ruin your house. Any other animal, I think I'm right in saying this, as a non-animal lover, will find their way home. So if you kick out a dog, if you kick out a cat, they will come back when they're hungry. Yep. But sheep aren't like that. Sheep don't have that mental capacity. If you drop a sheep in the middle of nowhere, I'm not suggesting you do this in case anyone works for the RSPCA, because they are unintelligent and obstinate, they will get lost. They are unable to fend for themselves. They are unable to defend themselves. They will get lost. They will not be able to find a home. They need to be brought home. They need a shepherd. See why it's such a rich metaphor? Right at the end of the book, we're saying this is a Christian community of generosity, of kindness, of purity, of holiness, of hospitality. But actually, your biggest problem that we've been talking about through the whole book, says the writer, is your greatest need is that you need a shepherd. Because just like sheep, you're obstinate. Just like sheep, you will not fend for yourself. You cannot defend yourself. You go through life, you get grey hairs, and you'll know this. There will be times in my life, there have been, there will be times in your life, in the future, or there has been already, where you will not think clearly. You will not be as self-aware as you should be. You will make foolish mistakes. And if you do not have people in your life who says, don't go that way, you've made a mistake, come back. You've got into debt, come out of it. You've, stopped, you've started to do something that's dangerous, you need to just stop that and come back to something that's healthy. If you do not have a framework of shepherds in your life, you are in grave, grave danger. And if it hasn't happened to you, it's happened to one of your friends. You need to authorize some people who are close to you, who care for you, who will be empathetic to you, who will teach you and train you. You need to authorize them a hunting license in your life to say that is bad, that is unhelpful, that is unhealthy. Don't go that way, go this way. Why? Because the Bible describes you and me as sheep and we need a shepherd. That's a simple point. Here's the longer point, number two. If it's our need of help, our need of a great shepherd, look at the surprising identity of the shepherds. And that's why I've put these three passages together on our sheets. Who should the shepherds be? Who should the shepherds be? Before we get there, here's two equal and opposite mistakes. 
The first mistake you or I can make is to say that we can just shepherd ourselves. We don't need anyone's help, thank you very much. We're okay, Jack. We can look after ourselves. I've called that under-shepherding. We don't need anybody else. We're fine to get our way home. I know everyone else can't find their way home. I know no one else can defend themselves. I know no one else can uh, provide for themselves. No one else can see reality clearly, but I'm the exception to the rule. I don't need anyone's help. It's me, myself, and I. That's the first mistake you can make. Uh, a proud reaction to authority structures that says, no one needs to help me. I'm the king of my castle. That's the first mistake. But here's the second one, and it's important for verse 17. Verse 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. We need to say very clearly that sentence has been misused tremendously throughout the history of the church. If there is one danger of under-shepherding, I don't need anyone's help. Here's the flip side. It's uh, over-shepherding, heavy-shepherding, controlling. It's uh, authoritarianism. That is not what the Bible is talking about at this point, but that is a danger. When you elevate people to such a position that only their word is truth, that you become codependent on a leader, a charismatic character who can do no wrong. And he spoke very helpfully on that last week, so I won't say any more than that. Authority, clearly from the Bible, is a good thing. Authoritarianism is a bad thing. And that's what we need to get as we begin to look at this surprising identity of shepherds. If we need them, where are they? Here we go. There are three groups. Firstly, you need to be shepherded by your peers in grace. By your peers in grace. What do I mean? It's there in 3.13. Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another daily so that no one of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need to have an understanding that the person sat next to you, if they are a Christian already, they're no smarter than you, spiritually. They may be more mature than you, they may be less. But the quality they have to speak truth into your life is that they are not you. That's the big one. Because they're not you, they can see truth in your life and areas of growth that is needed in your life that you cannot, because you and I both have a problem with pride. There's been more than once where I go and stand before a mirror and I think I'm okay to go out the house. I then go and stand before my wife and she says, you're not. Your hair's sticking up. Sort it out. I respond in the masculine way by licking my fingers and sticking it down. She says, no, go and get some hot water. You and I cannot see true reality in our own hearts. That's why we need great friends. And 3.13 says, you need to have good friends who can encourage one another but the significance of 3.13 comes in when you look at chapter 13, verse 22, because the same word is found there. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written you only a short letter. Don't you love it when a preacher says that? This is a short message, and it's two hours long. Here's the writer, and he says, I've written to you really briefly. And he could stand on his theological foundation and say, do what I say. I've written a book. I know about this subject. But the word he uses is a shepherding word. I've written this book to encourage you. I've written this work for your exhortation. I've written this book for your direction. It's not about me, he says. I'm trying to point you to the great shepherd of the sheep. 
You need friends who can encourage you. He doesn't say, I'm the authority, listen to me. He points away from himself and he says, I want to show you who the true authority is. In short, you and I, if we're Christians here this afternoon, we should be shepherding one another. We take the truth of the Bible and we try to expose our hearts to it as we eat this book, as we meditate on it, as we think it through, as we enjoy it, as we uh, spend time and steep our heart on one sentence that's important for this day. But think about what chapter 3 verse 13 might look like with me. What does it look like to encourage one another daily? Notice that word there, that's a real pain that it's in the Bible, it says daily. Wouldn't it be great if it just said to do this, you need to go to church, take notes, look intelligent, and you've done your exhortation. But then it says daily. That means you need to get involved in people's lives. That means you need to have somebody that you can say, I want to be accountable to you. That means you need to have somebody of the same sex as wives, whom you can say, can we get together and pray? Can you, as an older parent, come and help me as a younger parent? Can you be my friend? I'm lonely. Can you help me to read this Bible because you're more mature than me? Can you help? Can you tell me when my hair is sticking up? Can you tell me when there's broccoli stuck in my teeth? Can you tell me, can you help me because I want to grow? I don't just want to be told how to be a great mum. I don't want to be told how to drive my car well. I want to be someone who loves Jesus more in 2018 than I do in 2017. Do you want to get together and read the Bible with me? That's exhortation, taking the word of God and the truth of God and rubbing it into your own heart so that you can encourage one another. That's exhortation. But that means you've got to get to know me and that means I've got to let you in and that means I've got to let down the drawbridge. And that's where the problems begin. Isn't it easier to say, how are you, as you walk by, and you say, I'm okay, before the sentence is even finished. But more often than not, we're not okay. And so we need someone to shepherd us. We need to be shepherding one another. And what's the qualification, chapter 3, 13? All you need is to not be you, because you can't see when broccoli's in your teeth. You can't see when your hair's sticking up. But you need to have someone in your life who is a peer of grace, level ground before the cross, but someone who can come alongside you and say, let's walk together. Let's journey together. That's the first group. Here's the second one. It's there in chapter 13. If the first group is peers of grace, here's the true shepherd himself. It's there in chapter 30, verses 20 to 21. It's Jesus himself, the great shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. What does that mean? He's the ultimate shepherd. He's the ultimate shepherd. And uh, to paraphrase, Jesus as the great shepherd would say this to all of us who are tempted to be codependent in our relationships. Do not say to your spouse, I want you to lead me in my life. Do not say to your friend, will you be my great shepherd? Do not say to your brother or sister, do not say to your boss, don't make any other human your saviour. Because there is one, Jesus Christ, verse 20 and 21 of Hebrews 13, who's the great shepherd of the sheep. Don't place burdens on your peers of grace who are there to point you to Jesus so that they become a pseudo-saviour. Someone who, if you've got their approval, if you've got their smile, 
If they notice you're at something, then you're okay. Don't make anyone else a great shepherd because only Jesus is. There are peers of grace to get alongside you like the crowd in Barcelona and spur you on. But then there's King Jesus and him alone. And it's his smile that we already have if we're Christians. And if we place his uh, affection, as it were, if we think we can get it from anywhere else, we'll become a slave, we won't be free any longer. The only way you're going to stay away from um, under-shepherding, so you just think, I don't want anyone to speak into my life. The only way you're going to stay away from over-shepherding, a controlling spirit, uh, too close alignment to any one person, male or female, is if you have peers of grace, but even above that is if you see Jesus as the and the only great shepherd of the sheep. If you don't see him as that, you'll find your need of authority comes from an earthly person, a mum or a dad, a boss, a peer, a friend. Peers of grace, the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus. Thirdly, if you've got these two building blocks, these two convictions in your heart, then and only then can you read verse 17 of chapter 13. Then and only then, if you have peers of grace and if you understand Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, then is it safe to read this sentence, obey your leaders and submit to them and to their authority for their keeping watch over your soul. I don't know how you approach this verse unless you're a member of a church. It doesn't have to be here, it can be another gospel church. But if you are not a member of a church, I don't know how you begin to understand this verse. I don't understand how you apply it, because it says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Who? Who is that? Well, it needs to be leaders in a local church context who you love and who you respect and with whom you've entered into a, a membership, a covenant agreement with. Someone simply, you say, I, want, I recognize your authority, chapter 13, verse 17. I recognize that you have limited authority, but under God you are there to care for my heart, to care for my spiritual welfare. I'm going to submit and recognize your God-given authority. It's not yours, it's from God. But actually, I'm going to recognize that and I'm going to come underneath it. And that is so countercultural, it's unbelievable. It was then, it certainly is now. But it's seeking to say, I give you the right, and this is radical, I give you the right to call me to account to live my life as I should be living it. That is radical. Because too often than not, Christian leaders can misuse that. Too often they can abuse that. And that's why we spoke about peers of grace. Jesus and Jesus alone is the great shepherd of the sheep. But with those two building blocks in place, Verse 17 says, therefore, obey leaders and submit to them in a local church. You don't have to obey the Pope. You don't have to obey uh, another reformed Christian teacher in London or on the other side of the pond. You need to be part of a local church community where Jesus is loved and the community is seeking to be reached. See that surprising identity? You thought I was just going to say Jesus. But actually, it's peers of grace who only qualification is that not you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the great shepherd of the sheep. And then and only then, verse 17 says, it's leaders in the local church. That's a great need 
of shepherds. It's the identity of who the shepherds are. And then thirdly, finally, the power. There is power in shepherding that can be misused. But let's look at it positively. What does the shepherd do? Verses 20 to 21. The great shepherd of the sheep equips you for everything good for doing his will. He works in us what is pleasing to him. That's what shepherds do. They've not got their own agenda. They're trying to keep you safe. They're trying to make sure you're well fed. They're trying to make sure that you're defended. They're trying to make sure you get home safely. And the Hebrews uh, were struggling to get home safely, spiritually speaking. And that's why Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, whose sole aim, earthly speaking, is to secure for himself a flock, sticking with the metaphor, and to keep them safe by shepherding them well. But look at uh, the difference there is, because surely will not every other major world religious leader say the same thing? I'm the leader. There are lots of similarities between Christians and other uh, faith groups. But here's the difference. It's the motivation of verse 20. May the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Now this is interesting. Well, I think it is anyway. Whenever the Bible talks about resurrection, it talks about God bringing Jesus back from the grave, from the dead. The word here is not the normal word used in that context. This is why it's interesting to me. The word that's used here is to return from exile. To return from exile. May the God of peace who returned Jesus Christ from exile, that great shepherd of the sheep. Now that biblically is very, very significant. When you talk about sin, our understanding of rebellion against God, that's going to be our rebellion against God and enmity that there is between God, between our fellow humans, and between us and the whole of creation. And exile is one of the main metaphors that the Bible has for getting this, this, uh, this separatism, this, uh, this gap, this barrier, this uh, differentness, this going awayness. It's the one way to get this into our heads that there is an exile that has happened. Here are some examples. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are driven away from the loving relationship that they have with the God of the universe because of their sin and rebellion. There's a consequence, they're driven away. When Cain killed Abel, he lost his home. He gets driven into exile. When Jacob deceived his father, he lost his home. He had to go into exile as well. But the big one is the children of Israel. The children of Israel, when in Exodus we read of the story when God rescues the people for himself, he delivers them from the heel of Pharaoh in Egypt. They go into the promised land, but then they rebel and he says, I rescued you to worship me, but because you've rebelled, there will be a right and just consequence. You will be driven into exile. And the only way that you will be safe taking a step back, so to speak, is in Exodus 12, through the death of a lamb. The only way that you're going to be safe in this Exodus event that we see come as the children of Israel are rescued from Egypt, that we see again later on in the Old Testament as well, is through something called the Passover, through a special meal that God plans for his people. And God says to his people, in a sense, there will be exile. You will be driven away from me. There will be my justice and wrath poured out. That must be satisfied. That's appropriate, but I will bring you back. I will rescue you. 
I will, in a sense, resurrect you. You are dead. I will bring you back to life. That's all in the Old Testament. I'm going to bring you back to your homeland. I'm going to bring back a, a remnant in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But that's only possible if there is bloodshed. That's only possible if there is the blood of a lamb put on the doorpost in Egypt and he will pass over his people and he will see the blood and he will bring his people back to their homeland. And that's exactly what happened. But when Jesus Christ stood before his disciples and when the Passover meal was prepared before the cross, there was bread there, there was wine there. But where was the lamb? And that's when Jesus opened his lips and said, earlier in the gospel, I am the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. I'm the ultimate Passover Lamb who will bring you back from exile. Tomorrow, what's going to happen on the cross as he had the last Passover supper with his disciples, he says, I'm going to experience, I'm going to experience the ultimate exile. I'm going to get ripped apart from you. I'm going to get driven away relationally, spiritually, cosmically. I'm going to experience the alienation that your sin deserves on the cross. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to pay the penalty. And because I'm exiled and driven away from my father, because I've separated, you can come home. You can be rescued. You can be resurrected. You're spiritually dead. But because I will die, you can have life. That's the ultimate exile and they'll pay the ultimate price. Far greater than the social bondage that Moses and the children of Israel were delivered from in the Old Testament. Jesus can say, I've defeated sin and death itself and so you can know life and life in the full. And so Jesus can say at the end of the book of Hebrews, all the other religious leaders will say, I'm the shepherd, I'm the leader of my religion. Shoo, come this way, go that way. But Jesus, verse 20 and 21, is the great shepherd of the sheep. And he's the only religious leader who actually became not just a shepherd, but a sheep. And he's the only shepherd who became a sheep who died by the blood of the eternal covenant, verse 20. He died the death you should have died so that we could live the life that he lives. So what? Here's a few so what's. What does this mean? It means that we can end anxiety at the end of this book. Think of it this way. If God is the great shepherd of the sheep, who by his blood of the eternal covenant won you, rescued you, God himself has literally moved heaven and earth. He's moved from earth to, rather from heaven to earth, to pay the penalty of your sin so that he never ever has to lose you again. Why do you and I struggle with anxiety so much? When the Bible says Jesus loves us, this I know for the Bible tells me so. It's the end of anxiety because God himself has come from heaven to earth to rescue you, to deal with the penalty of sin and the power of sin so that he never ever has to lose you again. Sleep well, drive anxiety away, meditate on that truth. And what about for another building block that Andy used last week, for another wall to throw up in this community? community of hospitality and generosity and holiness and purity. What about a community of confidence? A community of confidence. Because it says here that Jesus is blood of the eternal co covenant. 
Friends, you and I are sheep. You and I are rebels. You and I are sinners. But this truth of the eternal, unbreakable, solid, lasting, perfect covenant means we're a sinner and we can dare to be a sinner and you can dare to admit that you're a sinner and God loves you anyway. We don't have to put on a mask or a facade. We can be real with one another and we can certainly be transparent with God because he knows anyway. So it's the end of anxiety and we're a community of confidence not in ourselves but in the blood of the eternal covenant, verse 20. And then with that there's great freedom. Great freedom so that we can shepherd one another and we will make mistakes. We can try and speak truth to one another. We will get it wrong but we will be a community of confidence where there's less and less anxiety, where God himself directs us in the way we should go. And think about this as we close this book. Remember how we started in chapter one? Those first four verses that are absolutely remarkable, that give us a theological nosebleed. They're so high in describing the beauty and glory of King Jesus. The high and the lofty one. And then here the book ends saying actually he became the lowly one. He became like a sheep. He became like a lamb who was sacrificed outside the city walls. And because the great shepherd of the sheep became a lamb, we as little sheep can become very humble shepherds to other people. Peers of grace. We can become the kind of people that help each other to grow in grace, pointing each other away from ourselves and to God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be part of a community like that? Let's pray that we become that. Let's pray together. Father like, he tends and spares us. Well our feeble frame he knows. Praise him, praise him. Praise him, praise him. As his mercy flows. Father, we thank you for this deep and rich book of Hebrews that is so centered on King Jesus. We've got many questions as we leave it, but we thank you for the light that you've shone into our hearts through it. Please help us to enjoy, to fix our eyes, to encourage one another and to spur each other on before the great shepherd of the sheep calls us home or before he returns. Father, we pray that you would speed his coming but we long for our non-Christian friends to know of Jesus. So give us the courage to invite at this Christmas time and give us the enthusiasm to speak of Jesus with great joy and hope, not just because it says so in Christmas carols, but because it's true. Amen.